Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. On view now are three exciting exhibitions, Bill Cunningham Facades, The Black Fives, which examines the pioneering African-American basketball teams in New York and the U.S. from the early 1900s through 1950, and Homefront and Battlefield, Quilts and Context in the Civil War. If you haven't seen it, we invite you back. They're wonderful exhibitions. And don't miss our Bernard Nyren Schwartz classic film series on most Friday evenings. We have flyers outside on your way out if you're interested. This Friday, Roman Holiday with Catherine Weiler speaking, uh, interviewed by Bob Herbert. It should be a terrific night. Always ask how many members do we have with us? Like to see lots of members. Thank you all for being our members and coming. We invite those of you who are not yet members to join free admission to the museum, great discounts on our programs, and we just love you to join the family. So thank you all for being here. Now's the time I ask everyone if you have a cell phone or an electronic device to please turn it off for the duration of the film. Tonight's program, John Quincy Adams' American Visionary, is part of the Bernard Nyren Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, which is the heart of our public programs. As always, I'd like to thank Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz for their support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to New York Historical Society. Additionally, I want to recognize and thank New York Historical Society trustees, Lon Jacobs, Ira Unschuld, and Michael Weisberg, and all our Chairman's Council members with us tonight for all their great work and support. Let's give them all a big hand. <clears throat> The program tonight will last an hour and include a question and answer session. Audience members will be invited to approach two standing mics in the aisles. <clears throat> and we ask you to do this so that the speakers on stage can hear you, everyone in the audience can hear you, and the greater world can hear you because we are recording it and it will be posted on our website as a podcast. Following the program, please join us for a book signing with, this, with our speakers tonight, whose books will be available for purchase in our museum store. So we are thrilled to welcome Fred Kaplan to the New York Historical Society. Mr. Kaplan writes the War Stories column for Slate, and he worked for the Boston Globe for 20 years as a correspondent in Washington, D.C., Moscow, and New York, and he's the author of four books, including the Insurgents, David Petraeus, and the Plot to Change the American Way of War, and most recently, John Quincy Adams' American Visionary. We are also so pleased to welcome Louis P. Major, our moderator for this evening, who is, distinct, who is Distinguished Professor of American Studies and History of Rutgers University. Professor Major is a cultural historian whose essays and reviews have appeared in the New York Times, The American Scholar, Slate, and Salon. He currently serves on the Historians Council of the Gettysburg Foundation and is the author of numerous books on American history. So now, please welcome Fred Kaplan and Louis P. Major. Thank you.
we're just going to talk among ourselves for a while. Yes, yeah, right, it, it, right, it, It's right. great to be here. Uh, uh, one detail, Fred, that you want to just correct about your biography. Yes, uh, yes, my career has, has been very diverse, but it, it, it's mostly focused on uh, literature and on history. And uh, I, uh, I keep a low profile, uh, hidden away in Maine now as I read and I write, so I don't have the opportunity to be engaged in, um, in, in current political and, and uh, military things. Uh, but I have written biographies of Thomas Carlyle and of Charles Dickens and of Henry James and of Mark Twain. But somehow I got directed more towards uh, history and the interconnection uh, between literature and politics in recent years. And the figure that brought me there was, of course, our, our wonderful and ever-memorable 16th president, Abraham Lincoln. So uh, my most recent book, prior to John Quincy Adams' American Visionary, was uh, Lincoln, the Biography of a Writer. For it occurred to me uh, that Lincoln not only was an extraordinary politician and a deeply humane and in many ways beautiful man, but he also was a great writer in his own way and contributed uh, very importantly to American literature. So that book focused on the growth and development of, liter of Lincoln's literary genius. And Lincoln, as I was working on it, brought me to John Quincy Adams because uh, on various levels, Adams kept coming to my mind in terms of uh, Lincoln as a political philosopher, Lincoln as a man reacting to contemporary issues, and Lincoln as a writer. And suddenly it occurred to me, hey, what am I going to do next? Shall I do a biography of John Quincy Adams? Only a madman would, would do that. I mean, how long is this going to take me? Well, it took me six years, but it also has provided me with the pleasure of being here tonight with uh, this distinguished moderator. Well, thank you, Fred. Well, talking about Quincy Adams and, and Lincoln, one of the amazing things about John Quincy Adams, of course, is he knew George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. And this biography gives us a really full portrait of the public and the private John Quincy Adams. I, I want to read something that John Quincy Adams wrote and ask you to comment about this. He said, we are sent into this world for some end. It is our duty to discover by close study what this end is, and when we once discover it, to pursue it with unconquerable perseverance. Now, we would think that John Quincy said that, John Quincy Adams said that at the end of his life. In fact, he wrote that when he was 11 years old. Uh, what kind of a child are we talking about here? <laughs> Well, when I was 11 years old, I was writing other kinds of things. <laughs> Graffiti, I suppose. Uh, but I deeply identify with uh, that expression of dedication uh, of John Quincy Adams' is. Uh, and uh, I uh, gradually, over a lifetime, became just obsessed with uh, accomplishing something. And so I really have the sense that, that at 11 years of age, John Quincy Adams, as the heir, if you will, to a certain kind of 
of modified New England Puritanism with a high sense of mission, uh, both a mission bestowed by some larger force or, and a mission that was inseparable from societal self-definition, family, place he lived, uh, community, etc. cetera. Uh, I have this uh, strong sense that uh, he was uh, someone I, I could identify with. Uh, he came from a bookish and, 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 and a political and a literary background. Uh, I come from a very different world, uh, a Jewish world of uh, second generation immigrants, but these were people of the book. And John Quincy Adams was very much from the start, uh, as was his entire family, his father, John, John Adams, and of course, his wonderful mother, Abigail. They were also people of the book. Uh, and uh, writing was an obsession in the Adams family. They, could, they, they were just as much and well write as breathe. So from 11 years old on, this boy had a sense of his destiny. Now, the destiny could have been aborted, and there were many ups and downs in, in his career. Uh, but uh, he inherited from his parents a sense of his potential greatness. He embraced it. He went through many difficulties, uh, both uh, professional and personal. And in the end, when in uh, the presence of Abraham Lincoln, the young uh, one-term Congress, well, not so young, but the one-term congressman from Illinois, in February 1848, he collapsed on the floor of the House of Representatives and died at the end of that month in the Speaker's office at the age of 80. He was indeed a man who could say, as he is reported to have said, uh, this is the last of Earth. I am content. One of the great advantages of this writerly New England family, of course, is the richness of sources that you had to draw upon. Uh, his diary, which he kept, if I'm not mistaken, from around the age of 13 to the very end of his life. In fact, one of the stunning moments here is toward the end of his life, he even writes an entry in his diary that he labels posthumous memoir, uh, anticipating the end. But that diary, as a literary scholar, you make a lot of that diary, uh, not just as a record, but the importance of it for Adams trying to come to terms with his own identity in some ways. Uh, what is it about that diary, both as a source that you were able to mine, and what is the larger argument here about the role that diary keeping kept meant for Adams's life? He kept that diary uh, most days of his life with certain uh, interruptions, uh, but they were not lengthy. And as he came into his adulthood and his maturity, the, the diary, which he defined as a record of his times and as a statement that I too am here, and as a uh, intimate companion for his uh, feelings, his thoughts, his ideas, his intellectual musings, his religious concerns, the ups and downs of his daily life, and so on. All that was for John Quincy Adams probably the uh, most 
continuous uh, daily immersement of his life in self-expression and self-exploration. He was a very good writer, not a great writer, not a great writer like Lincoln, but a very, very good writer. And he was an immensely educated man. I would argue that he was the most educated and scholarly of all our presidents, mm. even more so than Thomas Jefferson, who, let's say for those who are Jeffersonians among us, he runs a close second. <laughs> and, uh, and the diary became a repository. Um, let me phrase that differently. It became a living, organic, ongoing expression of everything that was important to him. It was also what he called when he advocated to his sons that they also keep diaries. It was also a monitor. It was also a way of holding himself up to uh, an ethical guideline or standard so that he could say, I have behaved well today or I have not behaved well. I am feeling good about what I did. I am not feeling good. And why? So uh, it's an extraordinary uh, document, uh, among other reasons, for historians especially, is because here is a man who is actively engaged in the uh, diplomatic and political activities of uh, a, uh, a, an, almost a, a 60 to 70 year period of American history. Uh, in his early adulthood, George Washington appoints him minister, same as ambassador, we didn't have ambassadors in those days, minister to The Hague, to the Netherlands. And then he gets appointed to other ministerial posts, but he starts by, with, with, with George Washington writing to his father, John Adams, George Washington's vice president, uh, do not think that I am appointing your son to this office because of some favoritism. No, on the contrary, I have the strong belief that he will uh, turn out historically to be uh, the, uh, an ornament to American diplomacy. And at the end of John Quincy's life, to dying in the House of Representatives uh, with uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, there and being appointed actually an honorary pallbearer for his funeral. Well, speaking of his diplomacy, one could probably argue that he invents American diplomacy, that he's the greatest American diplomat of all time. I mean, just to read some of his appointments with which people may not be familiar, uh, he was minister to Berlin, minister to Prussia, the first United States minister to Russia, minister to the court of St. James, and of course, secretary of state. Right. Uh, in fact, some people would argue that the Monroe Doctrine should properly be called the Adams Doctrine. If we were to assess his importance in American history, just for his diplomatic service, how would you, what, what kind of an assessment, what kind of a judgment would you render about in what ways did he contribute to uh, ideas of American diplomacy? Well, well, my judgment is he was the greatest American Secretary of State, but I'm partial. Um, but obviously, he, uh, in the early years of the Republic, uh, represented the United States in Europe, and then uh, from 1817 to uh, March 1825 as James Monroe's Secretary of State, in some of the major negotiations and, and advances 
of American presence as this fledgling nation went from its negligible position in world affairs to become, by uh, the uh, 1830s, uh, uh, a major power. Not the power, and of course, it was to be uh, after the Civil War, mm -hmm. but nevertheless, a major power. So, I mean, uh, the obvious uh, great accomplishments of Secretary of State is uh, the Adams own the, the greatest accomplishment as Secretary of State is the Adams Onus Treaty, which brought us Florida, and which extended the western boundary of the United States, which was sort of hazy and undefined after the Louisiana Purchase of 1803. Nobody actually knew where the Louisiana Purchase ended as you went westward, and different powers had different positions about this: Spain, Britain, France, etc. John Quincy Adams and the Adams Onus Treaty, 1819 to 1821, uh, obtained more territory for the United States than anyone other than Thomas Jefferson, of course, in the Louisiana Purchase. Actually, the diplomatic achievement that John Quincy Adams was most proud of and said was his crowning achievement was the Ghent Peace Treaty of December 1814 which ended the unnecessary and, uh, and uh, fruitless, almost fruitless war of 1812, even though we in the United States, we being our, our, our ancestors, uh, didn't learn about uh, the war being over until uh, January 1815, after the Battle of New Orleans, fought after the peace treaty had been signed, had been fought. And the British didn't want to fight the Battle of New Orleans in London. They said, no, the war is over, but even the fastest ship we have cannot get to New Orleans in time to stop our British forces from badly beating these poor Americans. So uh, the battle was fought, but look at it from John Quincy Adams' point of view. If that battle had not been fought, who would have heard of Andrew Jackson? much to John Quincy Adams' chagrin, as it will turn out. Uh, so, so why don't we move to that? Because for all of his great success as a diplomat, the general assessment is his presidency was hampered from the start. Uh, and indeed, I, I think the balance is right. I mean, here's a biography of one of our presidents, and I think you devote about 40 pages to his presidency. Uh, but, but we need to talk about that. So, so what is it about his presidency? Uh, what, what hampers it? And, and do you have any kind of a reassessment of it? Were there some accomplishments during his presidency that are worth recalling? Uh, to the first part of your question, the presidency was hampered by the fact that he was the second president to be elected by the House of Representatives, mm -hmm. in which each state gets only one vote not by uh, the popular vote and not by the Electoral College. The first president to, to be elected by the House of Representatives, very few people remark on this, was Thomas Jefferson. Right. However, there were special circumstances there. He was clearly the victor, but Aaron Burr and his supporters were sort of making use of the, 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 the rules, if you will, that went against the spirit of the election. Whereas in John Quincy Adams' case in uh, 1825, in March, he was inaugurated as president, having obtained 
the uh, majority of votes in the House of Representatives, but Andrew Jackson had obtained uh, popular, more popular votes and more electoral college votes. In that circumstance, the Jackson people were utterly furious. They were particularly furious at Henry Clay, as well as at Adams, because um, Henry Clay had turned over uh, uh, his, his, his House of Representatives uh, um, affiliates, if you will, three states that would do whatever Henry Clay wanted, uh, to John Quincy Adams. Henry Clay hated Jackson. Like Adams, like Jefferson, who was on the record on this, they, all three of those men thought that Andrew Jackson was totally unqualified to be president of the United States by temperament and by experience. Totally unqualified. So Clay turned over his votes. Thereafter, the Jackson forces decided that they would do everything possible to make sure that John Quincy Adams accomplished nothing as president. And <laughs> that can happen. <laughs> However, there were some accomplishments. But there are a lot of interesting things that happened, too, that, that presage what's to come later in the next 40, 50 years of American history. One of those things is John Quincy Adams, as president, uh, uh, appointing a delegation to a Pan-American, to, to a South American, Central American conference to be held in Panama, at which the Black Republic of Haiti was to be represented. This produced, and you can read it in the Congressional Globe, an extraordinary series of conflicts between the slave forces of the South in the House of Representatives and the Senate and, the, uh, and, 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 and all those in another camp, if you will. So what John Quincy Adams was looking forward to was Pan-American unity. And because of Haiti being a black republic, that conference was, in effect, undermined, if not destroyed. So my emphasis in John Quincy Adams' presidency is not what, on what he accomplished, but on the vision he expressed in his inaugural address, in, his two, in, in two of his three, four addresses to annual messages to Congress, and in terms of the way in which he was able to articulate a view of America's future that, in my, from my point of view, and I think for many of us today, though it'll always be qualified and nuanced, was the right direction for America to go in and in the direction in which we eventually came. Fred, let me press you on this because yeah. the subtitle of your biography is American Visionary. That's right. so, so what is that vision? Can you be a little more specific? I can, of course. I the can. elements of that vision. Yeah. The elements of that, of that vision are uh, an America which is a country unified by a federal government which has sufficient authority and power to bring out the best in all the states in the country under federal leadership that will bind the nation together into a total whole in which there will be a, a progressive balance between the powers of the state and the powers of the federal government, pointing towards a nation that is unified by public projects, by infrastructure, by roads and highways, 
by uh, canals and harbors that are dredged. A nation that is unified by a common currency, we had a common currency at the time, but it was very fragile, but especially by a banking structure that would be national and modern, that would provide credit for businesses, that would allow a, uh, a way in which the country could finance itself that would be constructive and move towards the future. In addition, he put tremendous emphasis on technology and science. He wanted federal funds to be used for it. Without John Quincy Adams, though this did not happen during his presidency, we would not have the Smithsonian Institute in Washington. He put tremendous emphasis on technology, and he himself was an amateur astronomist, uh, but when John Quincy Adams was an amateur anything, boy, he knew that subject inside and out. Uh, and in the next to the last, well, two years before he died, two and a half years before he died, he actually traveled to Cincinnati, Ohio, and he was ill, to, to provide the inaugural uh, address at the opening of the Cincinnati Astronomical Observatory. So this is a man with a vision for the future. He was also a man who said, uh, looking back at uh, Jefferson and uh, Jackson, and particularly at Southern restrictionists and constrictionists, that the Constitution of the United States is a living, growing, organic document. We must remain true to it when it is explicit about what it tells us, but there is broad room for interpretation to make it suitable and affected for the modern world. It's a classic Whig vision of American society and growth that will morph into the Republican vision that Lincoln and others will pick up. Exactly. So here's a man, the greatest diplomat of his age, who was also a senator, uh, President of the United States. He leaves the presidency. He's 64 years old. Time to pack it in for most people in the 19th century, maybe for many people today. But no, instead what we get is perhaps the greatest last act in public life. Yeah. Uh, he, why does he agree to go to Congress in the first place? Yeah, and, and, yeah. and then we'll talk about what he accomplishes in Congress. Right. It's the third act, of course, diplomat, president, and then congressman and famous, notorious congressman, the best known congressman in the country. Why does he agree to do it? His whole family is against it. His, his, uh, his sons are against it. His wife, uh, the wonderful and talented Louisa Catherine, um, a, a wonderful marriage, uh, tortured and difficult, happy and wonderful, long, uh, but uh, the entire family against his uh, accepting the invitation by his uh, the local constituency in the Massachusetts 8th District, uh, the constituency associated with the town of Plymouth that contained Quincy and Braintree, uh, that uh, he become their candidate uh, on what was emerging as the Whig ticket, but it's a little complicated. So we'll just let that, we'll leave that out of it. That's fine. And just say, they wanted, they said, our, our congressman is retiring, you're ex-president, we'd like you to represent us, you, we agree on a lot of things, and so on. Family against it. John Quincy Adams lived all his life by the maxim that I will never ask to be nominated for anything. I will never ask anybody's vote. I am not a soundbite man. Uh, I will serve if asked. I will never say no 
if asked, and I think I can do the job. And he, he said yes. So he represented uh, that uh, Massachusetts district from 1831-1832 until his death in February 1848. And gradually, uh, he became the, outs the, the most notorious, the most caustic, the most volatile, the most eloquent, old man eloquent, he was dubbed mm -hmm. by his contemporaries, exponent of, well, what shall we say? The focus was on the gag rule. The, 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 the country was ruled by Southerners and by the slaveocracy, as it began to be called, because they, with the three-fifths rule of the Constitution, uh, they had more, they got more electoral votes and so on and so forth, and uh, they dominated the House and the Senate, and of course, except for the two Adamses, all our early presidents were Southerners and slave owners. Uh, so, they instituted something called the gag rule. You can talk about anything you want. You can get petitions from, your, from, from ordinary people in the country, and, and everyone has a right to present a petition to Congress through their congressmen, uh, but except on one subject, slavery. And of course, this is at a moment where anti-slavery agitation, particularly in the North, is, is rising and peaking from 1831 on. So he's, he's in this position at the perfect moment. And he becomes radicalized. He has he always, as his family, has been strongly anti-slavery. Yes. And they have always worried privately that slavery will be the rock on which the Union will founder, crack, and sink. They always worry. But they're, they're not publicly outspoken about it. And then there are other issues. But in 1819, 20, 21, with the Missouri Compromise, where the slavery issue suddenly becomes inflamed for that period of time, uh, uh, and it has to do with the distribution of power between the North and the South, where the new states shall be admitted, and which ones? Will they be slave states? Will they be free slave states? Um, uh, John Quincy Adams becomes more occupied, preoccupied, but still mostly privately with the slavery question and begins to really express himself strongly about it in his diary and privately to people. But it's not, as Lou says, until he gets into Congress that he becomes publicly vocal about it, initially being very concerned that uh, he'll never get reelected to Congress if he makes, a, 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 if he makes a, such, a, a, such a stink about all of this. Uh, people in the North, the, the North is basically racist. They're not in favor of slavery on the whole, but they're basically racist. And they would say, leave the South alone if we possibly can. Let's not get into any big... So he, but he begins to get into big fights in Congress. He has other supporters. And of course, as you go f throughout the 1830s, uh, the anti-abolitionist, the abolitionist forces in the country become very, very powerful and dominant. Uh, Frederick Douglass and so many others become major voices. And suddenly, there is John Quincy Adams, this kind of really aging and wizened and a little tired, but he can always get up the energy. Uh, old man, bald-headed, you know, sinking in his seat in the house. But when they call on him, up he jumps. So when they don't call on him, he jumps up and says, are you trying to gag me? And that phrase, you know, rings to American history, are you trying to gag me? And it wasn't until 1844 that finally, as certain kind of political forces changed in the country and some of the balance between North and South changed, that John Quincy Adams and his colleagues were successful, triumphant, and 
the gag rule, which had become a continuing rule, they didn't have to vote on it every year, the gag rule was finally uh, withdrawn forever. And it had been on a continuing resolution, so they didn't even have to vote on it every session. Exactly. I mean, you tell some wonderful stories in here of Adams, and, and what's so disturbed, I mean, here's you know, the son of the revolutionary generation, the idea that the right to petition should be denied, and the things that he did uh, that played into his hands. So if I'm not mistaken, they tried to censure him at one point for speaking out of turn, but the rules allowed him, therefore, to have the floor. He held the floor for five consecutive days. Uh, so they gave him the platform that they had hoped to yeah. prevent him from having in the first place. He was a magnificent uh, tactician mm. in regard to Robert's rules of order and the House's rules for debate. He was a magnificent tactician. And uh, he was very clever. He, uh, he, he was a great public performer, and you couldn't tell whether he had really lost his temper or not. But he put on lots of performances, the point of which was to antagonize the Southern members <laughs> of the House so that they would lose their temper. And they were not magnificent tacticians, <laughs> as Lou just said. And so they gave him two, uh, two opportunities because uh, they tried to censor him twice. And it was very painful to him, even though he courted it because he knew he could then get the floor of the house, and he could keep it as long as he could stand, you know, uh, and, of course, get a lot of publicity for uh, his, 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 his position. Uh, yeah, it, it, it is, there's a, you know, a kind of extraordinary combination of human qualities that are, 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 are remarkable and admirable. I mean, this is a, a man who loves solitude. This is a man who loves to read. He studies languages. He knows Greek, Latin. He knows French, German, Italian. He studies Spanish and learns Spanish. He learns some Russian when he, not too much, but he learns some Russian when he's in Russia. He studies astronomy, and he becomes a horticulturist. Mm. After, my, my heart goes out to him. All the dead plants that, he, you know, that failed on him, all the seeds, uh, and he keeps going at it, and, and he plants things that the law had. So all, and then at the same time, there he is in public with this tremendous capacity for expressing himself effectively and, 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 and strategically at the same time. It's so fascinating because to go back into the diary, he writes at times in the diary that he feels he suffers from a want of genius. I mean, this is a guy who you just described. Um, I don't want to impose 21st century terms, but he himself writes about language, dejection, debility, uh, lots of illnesses, which we would probably consider psychosomatic to a certain level. What, let's just try and connect a little more this, this private person who at times was tortured, and, and you mentioned the marriage, of course, Louisa too suffered lots of illnesses and also kept diaries. And, they had a difficult time with their children, and those pregnancies were incredible. So they suffered through an enormous amount personally, and yet this amazing public trajectory. Well, isn't one of the great goads towards achievement the, the feeling of insufficiency, mm. of having to live up to a standard that you'll never be able to fulfill? And keep in mind, of course, that his standard were the two, in his eyes, the two great men of the revolutionary period, George Washington, and his own father, John Adams. And John Adams especially was a, a looming presence in his life. 
and a good presence, not, a, not an overbearing paternal presence, uh, uh, but a, a presence that, that, he, that, that, that he felt ennobled him. So he was a man of, uh, who felt inadequate as a public speaker, uh, never fully successful as a writer, but who had the sense that it was his absolute duty of self-definition, of respect for Washington and his father, and of patriotism, of commitment to his country, to never stop trying, uh, to do his best, and to always keep the balance sheet of what I have done and what I haven't done, where I've been successful, where I haven't been successful. And I'm always touched by the, the deathbed, uh, well, the death couch, because he's in, on a couch in the House of Representatives, the words that he says, uh, this is the last of earth, I am content. Mm. If, it is, if, that, if those were the words he actually uttered, I, I, I take the sources, I, I, I give the sources credit, and I say, okay, I go along with that. If those are the words he actually uttered, they're, it, it's, they're, they're, they're words that sort of bring tears to my eyes when you think about the struggle of his life, the failures and the achievements, one, one son who commits suicide, another son who dies of alcoholism, uh, his, own, uh, his, his own bouts with depression off and on, his, his own wife's illness. Also. His brother, his, 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 the brother he's, he has one brother who dies of alcoholism. He has another brother, the one he's closest to, who becomes somewhat alcoholic and has a, no career at all uh, in the shadow of his brother. But it brings tears to my eyes when he says, uh, uh, this is the end of earth. I am content. It, it's, it's, um, it's something that I think we, we all hope for. Mm. We all hope for some stoic moment in which we can say, this is the end, I am content. Well, he had perhaps his greatest moment toward the very end when he defends the Amistad captives before the Supreme Court. Again, a remarkable story. So among other things, he of course was a lawyer. Uh, and what is it, for nine hours over two days, he uh, speaks, could, could you talk about the Amistad case and, and his role in defending them before the Supreme Court of the United States? Yes, and I think it's Spielberg's best film, frankly, in its own way, in its own way. And I mean, it doesn't matter what I think, it's, and I'm prejudiced, obviously, because there is a, a, a wonderful actor playing this little old man <laughs> you know, who I identify with. Um, he hated being a lawyer. And, uh, you know, it was the, the default practice of a profession, because the Adams family was not born into wealth. And even though they, uh, John Adams was f fifth, fifth generation New England, no one of, uh, of the Adams family had had any distinction in any area of life before John Adams and the lead up to the Revolutionary War. Right? But John Adams earned his living as a lawyer, and he wanted all his sons, if they possibly could, to earn living as a lawyer graduated from Harvard, uh, you either became a, a clergyman or you became a lawyer, or, unless you had a, a Boston magnet, a businessman who had made a great deal of money and you could just go into the business. So he hated being a lawyer and he had to fall back on it early on. He served a term in Congress as a senator 
uh, elected by the Massachusetts uh, House legislature, uh, and, uh, and he got into a lot of trouble with the Federalists who put him there because he supported some of Thomas Jefferson's policies, the embargo policy and so on, uh, which he thought were bad policies but the best ones available for the country at the time. He came back in 18, uh, uh, twice to, to, to uh, once after uh, being uh, Washington's uh, ambassador to the Netherlands and then uh, after serving as senator to Boston to practice law and he really disliked practicing law. He was saved from the law when James Madison appointed him uh, minister uh, to, uh, to Berlin, well no, it was, it was actually minister to Holland and I've got a little confused now, it doesn't matter. Uh, appointed him to a diplomatic post. Things got a little confused, and I'm a little confused, so we'll correct well, that. Now, let's go on to let's the move Amistad, to the Amistad, because that's, we only that, have... that's where we want to get to. Right. And get to quick. And let me just say yeah. before we do that, um, that in a, in a few moments, uh, a few minutes, we'll be taking questions uh, from the audience. Uh, if you'd like to ask a question, please approach one of the two standing mics in the aisles, uh, and please, before asking your question, tell us your name, uh, and have respect for the other people waiting their turn, please ask one question uh, and kindly keep it brief. Thank you. And I, and I have a question for you. How many of you have seen the Spielberg film on the Amistad? I hope a lot of you, because I don't want to go through a the whole story. A number of people have raised we, their hands. We, we, but, don't, we don't have time, but, but let me just very quickly. tell you very quickly that he was asked to represent, or to be one of the attorneys representing the, uh, the, the, the black Africans uh, who, had who had taken over a slave ship, killed a number of uh, the uh, crew of the slave ship, and took over the slave ship, and wanted to head back to Africa. They were on their way to Cuba to be, they were illegal, it turned out. They had been stolen from Africa. The laws in various places by that time were against it. We're now 1839. He's asked to defend these. A, uh, he, with great trepidation, agrees to do so. He hasn't practiced law for like 35, 40 years or so. I forget the exact number of years. And he goes before the Supreme Court, and uh, along with other attorneys uh, who are also defending the Amistad prisoners, he is the headline attorney who speaks for nine hours over two days and gets the Supreme Court against the wishes of the U.S. State Department and against the wishes of uh, a great deal of the U.S. judicial system otherwise and against the wishes of all of the Southern forces to decide that these people deserve to be free. They have been uh, legally taken on the high seas uh, to, uh, to, to Cuba. They are not slaves. They are free men. And uh, they are not to be tried in a court of the United States. It's an amazing moment, and in one of the great hypotheticals or counterfactuals, uh, John Quincy Adams turned down, if I'm not mistaken, an appointment to the Supreme Court. And, and the person who was appointed was uh, Supreme Court Associate Justice Joseph Story, who was uh, uh, one of the uh, justices on the Supreme Court when that decision, the Amherst decision, came through, and he was delegated the job by the, uh, the uh, head of the Supreme Court, uh, or the Chief Justice, to write the decision. So the job that John Quincy Adams turned down, because he didn't think he was really, it, the, sitting on the bench was too much like being a lawyer. He wanted to be more active. He wanted to be in the political world or the diplomatic world. 
that decision, he argued before Joseph Story and the rest of the court. He also argued before Judge Roger Tawney, who was the Chief Justice appointed by Jackson. And it's Judge Roger Tawney who issued the Dred, who, who was the writer of the Dred Scott decision in 1857. And it was Judge Roger Tawney's uh, uh, who officiated and presented the Bible to Abraham Lincoln in March 1861, when uh, this uh, Dred Scott decision, Chief Justice, and this strong pro-slavery man had to swear in the 16th president of the United States. Well, we, we, we've done a tremendous loop here covering the era from Washington to Lincoln, of which John Quincy Adams is at the center of it all. Uh, shall we take some questions? Uh, this gentleman here, please, first. Hi, my name is Stephen Feiler. I'm, uh, I'm from Pittsburgh. Um, question. So I read somewhere that John Quincy Adams was uh, most likely our most innately intelligent president and in that he had an IQ of you know, possibly over 170 estimated. Um, what would you say about that? And then secondly, uh, I also saw a biography about him that mentioned um, a relationship he had when he was much younger with a, a much younger girl and his dad disapproved of and basically told him to um, cut that off and he did so and that it was very psychologically damaging to him. Um, so could you also comment on, on what kind of impact that had on his life? Thank you. Uh, well, John Quincy Adams was a hell of a smart man. But we, we don't have measurement uh, parameters to, that we can apply. And what do these measurement parameters matter anyway? You know, what, what does it matter? We know when people are smart, and we know when they're not smart, what a points on some <laughs> chart mean, a scale mean. I don't mean to belittle, but I, I understand where you're coming from. But let's just say, he, you know, there, there are certain people who sparkle with intelligence. And sometimes there are people who have tremendous intelligence who just by personality don't sparkle. And there are other people who ha don't have extraordinary intelligence, it would seem, or so you think later on, who sparkle because they're performers, because they have a, a sense of how to, how, to, how to sparkle in conversation in public with other people. The, yes, John Quincy Adams, uh, when he was a law student, which was an apprenticeship, in, uh, in Massachusetts, uh, and John Quincy Adams was just graduated from Harvard. He was about 20, 21 years of age. Fell in love with a, a beautiful 16-year-old young Newburyport lady of blonde hair and so on. And uh, they hoped to marry, uh, but uh, John Quincy Adams had no profession, and his family had no money to give him. And uh, you know, we're in a very um, paternalistic world which is not quite fair or accurate to say, because Abigail Adams, a very powerful mother, was just as much against John Quincy marrying this young woman as was John Adams, his father. And there was this strong sense that uh, it, was, it was ruinous for a young man of promise who had not yet established himself with a career in the world to marry and take on the responsibilities, financial especially, of wife and children. So uh, the relationship was broken up and, and so on. And the story has some more touching and poignant aspects to it. 
which you can read about in my biography. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> yes. Harold Walpen, uh, you've painted um, a great picture for which we all appreciate of, of John Quincy Adams uh, as both a great American patriot and his opposition to slavery in America. Did he ever write or speak about foreseeing the conflict between the two that came out, of course, in the secession and the Civil War? And how did he reconcile those? Great question. Yes, it's a, it, it, it's a very appropriate question. And it's, of course, one I'm very prepared to answer, because that is uh, something I've been giving a great deal of thought to and writing about, uh, a little bit about recently, particularly about Adams and Lincoln. Because Adams, from fairly early on, diary entries, very dramatic diary entries show this, anticipated what, in his view, was the inevitable war. He saw no hope of, of uh, reconciling the rock-bottom differences between the North and the South on slavery. And he feared that bloody day, but he also wished for that bloody day. Um, so uh, when people from the African or American Colonization Society came to him in the 1830s and said, oh, we've got a great plan. Uh, let's send all the free blacks we can possibly persuade to go to a new country, we'll call it Liberia in Africa. Won't they be happy? What do they want with Boston and Philadelphia and New York and so on? That's been here for generations, but sure, they'll go. <laughs> and let's little by little through manumission and through maybe the federal government allocating money to purchase slaves. There are now, in the 1830s, over three million of them, two and a half, three, three and a half. By 1860, the figure is there are four million slaves. And purchase those. And we'll put them on boats, and we'll give them a knapsack and some sandwiches, and we'll send them to like, I'm joking, of course, but you know, this is, you know, and Adam said, you're crazy. This is a fantasy. This is utter nonsense. Utter nonsense. It's not practically possible. Uh, it won't happen. Uh, it's inconceivable, it's stupid, impossible. So my question is, why did Adams from early on reject this and say it's a, a fantasy? And there are a lot of different people involved in the colonization society who have different motives for pushing it. Why is it a fantasy for Adams? And why is it a plausible reality for Lincoln? Right up to... 1862, right up to maybe September 1862, which this gentleman knows a lot more about than I do since he's written a book on this subject of the Emancipation Proclamation and the crucial 100 days and so on. So Lincoln commits himself and argues strongly uh, all through his public career, though he's deeply anti-slavery, that uh, colonization, uh, is possible. And the issue, and, and right up until military necessity, some people suggest, force upon him the decision, well, to win this war, we need these black soldiers. 
um, our backs are against, whatever, his reasoning, that's another subject. But why the difference between the two of them? It's an interesting subject, I think. Let's try and get some more questions in. Of course, it's also worth noting that Adams was a pacifist. He did anticipate war coming, but was also a lifelong pacifist, he hated which is part war. of that tension yeah. that right. we're talking about. Uh, I'm going to stay here and then come back to this side, if you don't mind. Go ahead. So. My name is Jim Mackin. Uh, if my recollection is correct that he was canvassed to be president of Harvard, what were the circumstances around that um, that resulted in him, him not deciding not to become president of Harvard? Yeah, you know, he had a long a a association with Harvard, and, and, and he, he felt deeply grateful to Harvard uh, that it had been sort of the, the forge on which his Americanness had been uh, uh, d deeply uh, realized when he came back from all those years in Europe as a young man. Uh, but he also had a sort of um, up and down relationship, an ambivalent relationship with Harvard. It gets a little complicated. It has to do with uh, who's in control of the Harvard administration. Remember, it's a small university, of course, during John Quincy Adams' years. Uh, and what appointments they're making. Uh, who was being appointed professor this or professor that, and does John Quincy Adams and other people approve? There are some religious issues involved because uh, the Harvard is becoming increasingly Unitarian, which is sort of liberal, and, uh, and John Quincy is sort of hanging back a little bit. He's, uh, he's an ecumenical Christian, and will go to any, any church, uh, any sectarian, any denomination in any country, and worship and learn. Uh, so he's not sectarian in the least. Well, um, he gets offered the position of president of Harvard in, in, informally. Uh, he has strong connections there, of course, and decides that the job is not right for him. And especially, he doesn't want to get involved in what he thinks are the, the necessary but difficult reforms that have to be instituted to make Harvard a more modern place and particularly create a better um, atmosphere for study and learning. Uh, there were riot, student riot after student riot at Harvard uh, between in 18, uh, the 1810s, 20s, into the 30s. Uh, a tremendous amount of drunkenness and gambling and so on. And doesn't, fact, one, doesn't one of his sons get kicked out? Exactly, yeah. and one of his sons. And that weighs on him that you know, his sons, both his sons have difficult experiences as Harvard, and one is actually right. kicked out. Uh, yes, sir. Yeah, my name is Jeremy Larson. A uh, question about uh, any kind of backroom deal with Henry Clay because Henry Clay became his Secretary of State, but it... Right, that's a, that's, I, I'm, I'm so glad you asked that. Look, I mean, there's a certain sense of, I mean, that people take this seriously baffles me. Um, there are, uh, uh, that phrase, backroom deals. I mean, let's drop backroom. In politics, there are always deals. It's always quid pro quos in terms of distribution of power and what's, who's going to do what and so on and so forth. Now, Henry Clay was the most qualified man in the United States in March 1825 when John Quincy Adams was inaugurated to be the Secretary of State. 
most qualified man. Not only was he the most qualified man, but he and John Quincy Adams agreed on almost everything in terms of the role for America, for the United States, in the world, right? So uh, what happened, of course, uh, those uh, uh, pro-Jackson people, and there were many of them and powerful, and there's, you know, a, a movement going on in the country that is anti-intellectual, that, uh, that is democratic and favors the popular man, but at the same time is, is moving us toward our soundbite culture. So what happens? The Jackson forces, of course, and it takes them six months or a year, and it's not really till the Haiti thing explodes and all the Southerners are furious because that, that black Republican Haiti is going to send an ambassador to Washington and we're going to have to sit down at a table with a black man? No. So it takes a little while and then they explode into the corrupt deal. The corrupt deal. It, it, it really, I mean, uh, unless you're caught up in partisan politics, grown-up people tend not to pay any attention to this. Yet, if you're caught up in partisan product, uh, politics and you're, you're doing uh, you know, talk radio and blah, 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 uh, th these kinds of slogans become very powerful. Uh, yes, sir. Hi, my name is Len Kay. I've read that one of the two men who Adams admired most in the country was Marquis de Lafayette. And I know after his death, he gave a great oration to the House of Representatives. Yeah. Can you tell us the basis of the background for that relationship? Yes, well, uh, John Quincy Adams got to know uh, Lafayette uh, when Adams was a young man, really a boy, when he was a boy. Uh, he got to know him through his father, John Adams, for uh, as a young boy twice and for long periods of time. Uh, John Quincy Adams was taken by his father to Europe for his education during the Revolutionary War and thereafter. And uh, uh, it was uh, Lafayette, of course, uh, was a, a famous young man at the time, not, not well, still a fairly young man, and, uh, and eager to have uh, relationships uh, with his American friends and supporters. So John Quincy Adams, over the years in Europe, had many opportunities to be um, uh, an intimate of the Lafayette Circle and the Lafayette family and stayed over at the Lafayette Estate outside uh, Paris. Also, as a scholar, uh, John Quincy Adams studied the French Revolution closely and published uh, his uh, analysis of certain aspects of it and their applicability to the United States and American politics and to British-American relations and so on. And Lafayette was always a part of that. So uh, Lafayette, the myth of Lafayette grew and grew in the United States. And uh, when uh, uh, Lafayette uh, finally returned to America, the country uh, celebrated uh, up and down the East Coast uh, this great figure and connection to the Founding Fathers. And because of who John Quincy Adams was, uh, he was asked uh, by uh, the uh, Jackson administration to, uh, to d deliver a eulogy for, uh, for, uh, for Lafayette and gave a, a very lengthy and uh, eulogy that I don't think is among John Quincy Adams' best writing. There are some things that are beautifully written and well, well worth reading today. I hope the Library of America or somebody 
we'll do an anthology of John Quincy Adams' writings. Let me cut you off there, Fred, because we have one or two last questions. We're almost running out of time, so very quickly question and very quickly answer so we can just get this in. Uh, good evening, Adam Rodriguez. Um, I was wondering if there are any kind of interesting direct interactions that Quincy Adams had with Lincoln while they were both in Congress, uh, and if so, you know, maybe tell us yeah. about one of them. Yes, uh, between early December 1847 and late February 1848, for three months, they overlapped uh, in Congress. Uh, we don't know, uh, we know that Lincoln had to be very aware of John Quincy Adams. We don't know to what extent Adams was aware of Lincoln. Uh, we know a great deal, though most of it through indirect sources about Lincoln's having been aware of John Quincy Adams and looked up to him from the mid-1820s uh, until John Quincy Adams' death. During the three months they overlapped in Congress, they voted the same way on every major issue, and there were three major issues. They, the three of the, they voted, the two of them voted against the Mexican War, which they both detested. They voted against slavery, which was actually in favor of abolishing slavery in the District of Columbia. They weren't successful at the time, but he and Lincoln voted the same way. And they also voted to allocate federal funds for infrastructure projects, for improvements. So they, 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 were, on, they, were, uh, they were on the same wavelength. They shared the same policies. Uh, very last question, uh, and this has to be very quick. Uh, my name is Ian Zafino. The, the question would be, and this was sort of similar to the, to the previous question, was um, towards the end of his presidency, he was pretty much hated or, I guess, exiled by, the, by his Federalist Party. Um, were those sort of the particular policies that he, and maybe his sympathies with, with, with uh, more of the Jeffersonian policies that you know, made him alienated from his party, or was there anything in particular that um, caused sort of that rift? Yes, his political career is that he begins as a Federalist. He is renounced by the Federalists. He then becomes a sort of tentative Republican, advanced by Madison. And he hates political parties all his life. He wishes we didn't have them. He eventually sees the necessity for them. He becomes affiliated with the Whigs, and he's identified as a Whig uh, mostly, but he's not happy with any political party identification. He really likes to be uh, an individual, an independent voice. And he thinks that political parties uh, are, uh, are and will be uh, destructive uh, to American, to, a, to virtuous, to virtuous. He looks back to the founding fathers, to virtuous, to the virtuous American republic. Great. Well, before Dale closes the program, I just want to say uh, one thing that I picked up from this biography that's appropriate for this evening and this occasion. In March of 1839, John Quincy Adams came to the New York Historical Society and delivered a two-hour lecture honoring the golden anniversary of the Constitution and George Washington's presidency. Uh, 175 years later, I just want to say thank you to Fred Kaplan for bringing John Quincy Adams back. Thank you, thank you, Lou. Appreciate it very much.